Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. This is so much about your heart, and I pray now that you would open up our hearts to the possibility of being loved this way and of having a full kind of life that we are maybe even afraid to dream of. So Holy Spirit, please be with us and please teach us. We need you. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, Russell Moore is a guy who's a president of a uh, Southern Baptist seminary. And a couple of years ago, he and his wife went to the former Soviet, uh, what is now the former Soviet Union, and told this story of the adoption of their two sons. So these are his, his words. And to start, I just kind of want to read you a little bit of that story. He talks about going into the orphanage for the first time. He says this, these are his words, The creepiest sound I've ever heard was nothing at all. My wife Maria and I stood in the hallway of an orphanage somewhere in the former Soviet Union. Orphanage staff led us down a hallway to greet the two one-year-olds we hoped soon would become our sons. The horror was not the squalor or the stench, although at times we stifled the urge to vomit or to weep. The horror was how quiet it was. And I stopped and pulled on Maria's elbow and I said, Why is it so quiet? The place is filled with babies. And we both compared the stillness here with the buzz and punctuated squeals that came from our church nursery back home. Because here, if we listened carefully enough, we could hear babies rocking themselves back and forth and crib slats gently bumping up against the walls. These children did not cry. The reason why is because infants eventually learn to stop crying if no one ever responds to their calls for food or comfort or love, and no one has ever responded to these children, so they stopped. And the silence continued until we entered the boys' rooms, and neither of them made a sound. We read books to them filled with words they couldn't understand about saying goodnight to the moon and to cows jumping over the moon, but there were no cries and there were no squeals and no groans, and every day we left at the appointed time in the same way that we had entered, in silence. On the last day of our trip, We arrived at the moment we had dreaded since the minute we received our adoption referral. We had to tell the boys goodbye. By law, we had to return to the United States and wait for paperwork to be completed before returning to pick them up for good. And after hugging and kissing them, we walked into the quiet hallway as Maria and I shook with tears, and that's when we heard them scream. Little Max fell into his crib and let out a gutter at yell, and it seemed he knew that maybe for the first time he would be heard. I share that story for this reason. I actually think we've forgotten how to cry. Uh, Infants stop crying when something in them starts to believe that there's no hope. Uh, And that there's no one to listen. And in this story, Jesus, not just in this story, but in His coming and in His life, He's come to awaken our hearts to the longing that we can be truly and deeply loved, the kind that we actually stopped believing was a long was possible a long time ago, that that it's the love of like fairy tales and children, uh, and so what we have now our conception of love is this kind of compromised version of love that's a lot about self protection and finding people that please us and all that kind of thing. And in many ways, I think what we are is we're people, all of us, who've stopped crying because we stopped believing that the kind of love offered in the gospel is really possible. And he, what he's showing us in this passage is actually 
what he's doing is he's opening and awakening that possibility again. He wants to open our hearts to the possibility of being loved that way. And here's how you know you're actually hearing Jesus for the first time and you're actually struggling with the promises of Scripture, whether you are, is that it's distressing. It's distressing because you're afraid of the kind of hope it offers, that it's too good. And it's distressing because it opens up a part of your heart that you don't want to open up. Because you've packed it away and you've made it hard and it keeps you from getting hurt. And what's far easier is sedating ourselves from hoping for deep and full life and rich experience. And we're afraid to cry because we think they're the type of people who won't be heard or the type of people who can't be heard or there's no one to hear us. And oftentimes because they're actually too proud to give voice to the desperation of our hearts. And for that very reason... This story with this particular woman is here. And so I want to go through three things about this story. First of all, who is this woman? What she offered? And how do we know she has it? Jesus, the theme around the story is living water. And that's how he describes the life-giving love of God. And the three questions, the three things are, what, who is that offered to? What types of people? What is it? And how do you know that you have it? So Jesus meets this woman on his way to Galilee, and there are just all these details leap off the page. So the first thing we're told is he encounters her at the sixth hour. When you read commentaries on this, all the commentators agree that this detail is very significant. The sixth hour of the day is noon. And the reason that's significant is because communities would go to the well in the morning and in the evening, because this is the desert, and in the middle of the day it's hot. And so they meet their water needs at the beginning and the end of the day. This meant she was avoiding her community. What this is, is a way of the writer telling us she's a social outcast. She's there by herself. No one else is there. She's an outsider. But not only is she a social outcast in her community, and we actually learn why later, secondly, she's also a Samaritan. And you might or might not be familiar with some of the Samaritan and Jewish interaction in the first century, but they had a very strained relationship. And the reason why is this. The Samaritans represent the worst kinds of people. In 722, Israel was taken over by Assyria. This is ancient New Eastern history. And what the Samaritans were, were the group of Jewish people who intermarried with their oppressors. So they were collaborators with the people that oppressed Israel. So if you're familiar with Dante's Inferno, you'll know that in the ninth circle of hell, the worst kind of person are people who betray their friends and family. In the 20th century, the Jewish people have more animosity, not towards Nazi Germany, they have more, even more animosity towards the Jewish people who collaborated with the Nazis. That's who the Samaritans were. They were collaborators with their oppressors. So the woman is shocked by Jesus' interaction. This is an interaction that does not happen, that's never congenial, that's, ne- that's always unfriendly, and rarely happens. So she is uh, she's a social outcast from her own community, and she's a wild, wildly political, political and cultural outcast from his community. And lastly, she's a moral outcast. In verse 17, we actually, in 18, we learn why she's there by herself. Again, think about the world. This is first century ancient Near East. These are conservative, small, very religious um, villages. How do you think a woman who has slept around with at least six men is treated in a small, religious, conservative rural village? The reason that she is at the well at noon is quite literally because she's actually slut-shamed into going to the well then. 
Here's the point that this passage is intended to make. She's the least likely person. She is the outsider of all outsiders, religiously, theologically on different pages with Jesus, morally, culturally, socially, politically. And Jesus moves toward her in care and compassion. And here's what that means for us, for everybody in this room, whether you believe the Bible or not. Here's what this is teaching us about the nature of Jesus. Is that no matter how any of us view ourselves, I'm not like Christians, I'm not like them culturally or morally or politically, I, I'm not, I, I have things in my life that kind of make me inappropriate for identifying with this group or identifying as a Christian or things that have done, been done to me that have really darkened me. And I'm not the type of person who's religious or that would trust in Jesus or find life in Him. I'm not the Christian type. I'm not like these people. And this woman in this story stands here to say, her story says, I am way less, way less the Christian type than any of us in this room. She is as far as possible as we could conceive of as being someone welcomed into the kingdom of God or into God's favor. And Jesus moves toward her in kindness and offers her life. And the reason it's important... In some ways, it's kind of hard to get how profound what's happening right here. And the reason it's hard to get around that is because our entire human experience is merit-based. Our entire human experience is merit-based. Right? The easy things are Stanford, jobs, clubs, tryouts for different things, academic, sports, whatever. We get that merit-based. But the reality is, what we don't want to admit, but it's absolutely true, is all of our friendships and even our familial relationships and even our love relationships are merit-based. We have seen the fact that some of our parents did not meet the requisite requirements to remain married to my other parent. Right? That means it's merit-based. They didn't perform to the standard. We have friendships that have been lost. That means it was merit-based. Someone didn't perform up to the standard. It is so deeply ingrained into our human experience that every, everything we do is merit-based that it's actually, in some ways, you're not really understanding Jesus in this passage until it feels disorienting. Like, no, there can't actually be relationships like that. Every relationship has to have a bare minimum performance standard, even if it's egregiously low. The Samaritan woman is the lowest of the low. She's the outsider of the outsiders. And in some ways, what you've got to see is the hardest thing to believe about the God of the Bible. There's a, we all struggle with different parts of our faith and have seasons of doubt. The hardest thing to believe, if you ever hear these stories and, and their import is really hitting you, is the freeness of God's love. And oftentimes people are offended by the freeness of God's love. And it's hard to believe, and it's almost always the people who believe that they've actually religiously and morally performed very well for Him that have the most trouble experiencing His love. Right? They judge the immoral and we live in spiritual pride. And in the New Testament, it, those people, us who have such a high esteem for our spiritual and moral lives, have the thinnest experience of God's love. It's usually us, religious people, who have the thinnest experience of God's love because we're still trying to relate to a merit-based. The woman is the outsider of outsider and Jesus offers warmth and love and moves toward her and when Jesus begins to move toward us, we begin to become whole and beautifully messy people for the first time. And what I mean by this, this is what I mean. If we begin to see how free Jesus' offer of love is, 
We will become whole people who are wonderfully messy. This is what I mean. We're all trying to be insiders on the outside. And our, the way we present ourselves to the world, we're trying to present ourselves to a world that communicates to everyone else. We are worthy of being an insider. In whatever realm or community or realm of achievement you want to be a part of, right? We deserve to be insiders and, and all of life is working to show the world on the outside that I deserve to be an insider. But this is the problem. All of us know inside we're outsiders. All of us know on the inside that we're outsiders. We all know our own hearts and we can't afford to show the shame and the weakness and the guilt and the insecurity and the fears and the doubt that we have because the world's too unforgiving. In a merit-based world, we can't afford to do that, right? Can't show weakness. And so on the inside, we all know that we're outsiders. And I've had this conversation with dozens of you over the last years. And, and you should feel free to have this conversation. It was just me or anybody else. It's a beautiful conversation to have. That you have your best Stanford exterior that got you in here. right? You were an exceptional where you were. Now you've got to show people you're exceptional here. But s- dozens of conversations where students have told me, I'm afraid people are going to find out I don't belong. At Stanford. Right? On the inside somewhere we know we're outsiders. I hope that makes sense. And the point here is this. is Jesus doesn't care about any of that stuff. He does not love or accept His people because of their moral or spiritual or social or cultural excellence. Ever. He loves and accepts people because He is gracious. His love is based on His character and never our performance. And the reason that we are neurotic and fearful and really unhold mentally ill people, all of us, is because we don't think there's a safe place to let out the inside of us and be accepted. So we live this dichotomy. The outside us that's not really us that we're trying to convince the world and ourselves is us and the inside us that we don't know what to do with. And this story stands here and says, with Jesus, the least likely outsider is welcome. And in fact, the least likely usually understands him the most clearly. So what is it that he's offering the least likely? Their conversation gets started. He asks for water. She uh, responds to him, uh, kind of in shock that he's asking her for water. And then he says this, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's speaking to you now, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She's briefly confused like the readers intended to be and and asks, You don't have anything to draw water with. I don't see another well. Are you greater than Jacob, our forefather who gave us this well? Like, Is there something greater you're offering? And Jesus says, You think I'm offering water like this. The water that satisfies briefly, but you have to come back for more. I'm not talking about physical water. The water I'm talking about, it when you drink it, you're never thirsty again. Your heart and your soul is full. And this water actually becomes a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You become more full after you drink it. And she says, I want that water. And she wants it and she doesn't know what it is. And Jesus takes a curious route to begin to teach us and help us understand what the living water is. Because when she says, I want it, what he does next is he says, all right, we've got to talk about your heart then. And he goes right to her heart and it seems like a non sequitur. And he says, 
All right, if you want this water, go and get your husband and come here. And Jesus is actually beginning to explain living water with this encounter. And the way he's doing it is he's exposing in her life where her inner thirst is most acutely felt. To begin to understand what the living water is, he exposes in her life where her inner thirst is most acutely felt. He's saying, I know you're thirsty. And all of us drink deeply of something. And what sin is... Right? Not a cool word, but we've got to kind of recalibrate our understanding of what sin is. Sin is drinking up things that cannot fill us. Putting into the center of our heart and trying to derive purpose from the things that cannot give us purpose and cannot fill us. We've got to recalibrate our definition of sin. The water imagery here is actually drawn from the Old Testament. It's all over the Old Testament. Jeremiah 2.13 says this, This is what God calls sin. My people have committed two sins. And he summarizes the sin of Israel and the sin of humanity this way. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they've dug their own cisterns and broken cisterns that cannot hold water. They have avoided getting life from me and sought to get life elsewhere. And this is why we've got to recalibrate our understanding of what sin is. Sin is not breaking an arbitrary list of conservative rules. You can't think that's what sin is after you've read the Bible. And that's often the way it's caricatured. When Jesus summarizes the rules, how does He summarize it? He says, here are the rules. Love God and love your neighbor. When Jesus talks about the rules, He talks about our hearts. And so the sin question is not, how have you misbehaved? The sin question is, what have you given your heart to? Because all the quote-unquote misbehaving we do, that's, that's the fruit, that's the organic end result of what is in our hearts. So, the reason that we cheat on our test, right? the reason we actually give up our integrity on a test, is because we are addicted to and think we will be happy if we achieve. Our heart is given to achievement. If you don't deal with this over here, it doesn't matter if you just kind of staple on the act of integrity. Right? The reason we flatter people is because we have given our hearts to people's approval. Right? So we become insincere flatterers. So the sin question is always the question of what is in your heart? What has it? To what have you attached it for meaning and purpose? And what Jesus is doing is forcing her to see what's in her heart. That she's taken to the center of her heart the attention and affection of men. Hoping that that will satisfy her thirst. And yet the key mark of something that doesn't satisfy is that she has been through five men and she's on her sixth. Is that you have to keep going back. This moment, her interaction with Jesus right here is everyone's most terrifying moment because her inmost fears and her inmost failures are exposed. They're brought into the light. They're brought into public conversation. Her shame is brought into conversation. And what Jesus is saying is, I know the real you. I've seen through the PR campaign. The one, the you that you've been hiding from the world, the one you've been hiding for so long, the heart of the real you has drunk deeply of men hoping to be satisfied. You know that you're getting close to actually dealing with Jesus because He goes to the place in your heart that you think He would never have gone. And it might even be something good. Right? And a lot of times we can hide those things from Jesus because we're like, but this is a good thing. Right? 
But when he gets to that place where you think, he wouldn't ask me about that, he wouldn't put his finger on that, let's pretend it's not there. These are your non-negotiables that you have in your life for holiness, for wholeness and for happiness. Your non-negotiables. That you're like, these could never be asked of me. The reason they feel like you're non-negotiable is because they have your heart. The reason they, these things feel like non-negotiables to you is because they have your heart. And we're not dealing with Jesus and we can't be satisfied with His love until we begin to see that His intention is to unseat those non-negotiables so that He can fill us. Do you want to be full? Because Jesus says, go and get the thing that possesses you. Your non-negotiables. What is holding us back from the life-giving water is the addiction to salt water that we have that we keep drinking and doesn't satisfy. And her response, she then responds to that. And also to us, to our modern years, it seems like a non-sequitur. But it's actually not. Because what she realizes is she doesn't know fully who Jesus is at this moment. But this is an encounter with God's servant in some capacity, right? A wise man, a prophet, maybe the Messiah. And so when she asks, okay, the, the key theological difference between the Samaritans and the Jewish people where the Samaritans worshipped and met God at Mount Gerizim and the Jewish people met God and worshipped at Jerusalem. And she is asking, my life has been exposed. She's asking Jesus, where do I go now to get right with God? This is an actual earnest question. Right? Everything has been taken away from her at this point. Her inner life has been exposed. And she asks the right question, where do I go to get right with God? And there's a huge, uh, there, there's a lot of historical background to Jesus' answer, and we can't go through all of that. Essentially, what he does is he confirms that the Old Testament is true and that God was working in the Old Testament. But he's also saying the Jewish religion is actually reaching its moment of climactic expectation, it's reaching the hour. And if you were here last week, you'll remember every time in the book of John, the hour is mentioned, that is in reference to Jesus' coming death. That's called his hour. His hour, His hour, over and over again. So you see right here, Jesus says in verse 21, the hour is coming. In verse 23, the hour is actually now here. When all the Old Testament expectations come to a point and God is making fully known His love, which in the Old Testament was known in shapes and shadows and signs. And He's saying worshipers of God will not worship at the physical temple anymore. That was a sign that pointed forward to the true temple. What a temple is, is a temple is a place where God and man meet and are reconciled. And if you read the rest of the Gospels, actually earlier in John, Jesus goes to the temple and declares to everyone that He's the true temple. This physical building doesn't reconcile us with God. It was always intended to be a sign to actually prepare uh, a, a sense of kind of muscle memory in the minds of the Israelites so that when Jesus comes and He says, I'm the sacrifice, I'm the sacrificial lamb, I'm the priest, I'm the temple, I am where God and man are made whole together again. The temple is the place where God and man meet and are reconciled, and that's exactly what Jesus does on the cross. And once we actually see a final sacrificial act of love has done on our part, what, we happen, what happens then is we begin to worship God in spirit and truth. And so Jesus is saying, oh, don't worry about the temples anymore. Look at me. The true worshipers of God, when they begin to understand His act of love, will worship Him in spirit and truth. What does spirit and truth mean? I'm going to do that for a minute and then we'll get to the end. Spirit, to worship God in spirit and truth means this, subjectively and objectively. 
that there is subjectivity to worship and there is objectivity to worship. What I mean, that this worshiping God in spirit means there's a subjectivity to it. It means that your heart is warmed to the love of God, that you have an internal existential experience. God loves me. This is what Paul says in Romans 5. God's love is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, His Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. There's an internal, subjective experience of the sureness that God loves you. But we don't just worship in spirit, we worship in truth. And truth means there's objectivity in our worship. It means that worship is based on God's actual, historical acts of love. Objective things that happened in history. It's not just this generic idea that we like God and there's some kind of metaphysical grandfather up there that's kind of smiles when he thinks about us, right? It means that we look at the cross and say, that happened in history and that's how much he loves me. There's an objectivity to our worship. Because sacrificial love is meaningless as an idea. It's only powerful and meaningful if it's a real historical event. Because religion of subjectivity alone becomes nonsense, right? If there's, if there's spirit and no truth, it becomes nonsense. It becomes, I just think and I just feel, and you begin to craft a sense of spirituality that's not grounded in anything. And so it offers no assurance, because how could you worship a God and even be sure that you're reconciled with God or even know that He loves you if He's never acted on your behalf in history? There's no objectivity to it. But a religion that's only truth and no spirit is also heartless, right? It's true and it just doesn't matter how you feel. God obviously cares about our hearts. And our hearts are how we experience love. How we think and experience satisfaction. So the love of God manifested in the death of Jesus, when you get the objective reality of those historical events, it sinks into our hearts and our hearts are filled. And we subjectively experience the sureness that God loves us. And so we worship in spirit and truth. The living water is Jesus and when He offers... What is offered in Jesus is the thing we long for from everything else in this world we can't get. Lasting satisfaction that goes all the way down to the core of our being and sustains us regardless of circumstances. Because every other fountain that we drink of, and we're all drinking of different fountains all the time, is all based on circumstances. Which means that those wells run dry eventually. Your mind is going to go, your relationships are going to go, your body is going to go. God's love is eternal. Which actually means in some ways the chief mark of a Christian will be that they will have a satisfaction in God even in the worst circumstances. Which leads to the last point. How do you know you're beginning to drink? And what I love about this story is what happens next in her life. And there are three things. We'll get through these very quickly. The first thing is actually verse 14 when Jesus begins to describe the water. He says, Whoever drinks this water I give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him, listen to this, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In other words, when you drink this water, it becomes a spring in you. And it begins filling you up more. She had five husbands because each of them failed to give her fullness. So she thought another, well, maybe another, well, maybe another. And maybe you've seen your parents do this in marriage. Maybe this is how, maybe this is how you view achievement each weekend. Maybe this is how you view pornography or each relationship you bounce to or each relationship you end, right? 
You just go after each one, each dollar and each win, whatever it is. We drink, and then we find ourselves thirsty again, and we're scared and angry about the possibility of scarcity. Living water quenches thirst. You know you have the one thing, but not only that, it becomes a spring welling up. Jesus talks about it again in chapter 7. He says, if anybody's thirsty, come to me and drink. And then he tells us what drinking is. Believing in me, and then out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. Not only does it quench the thirst, you become someone for whom the love of Jesus flows out of your life into others. This means your posture in life is no longer a frantic taker, but a generous giver. That what you don't do is process your entire life according to how can I acquire my dreams, but all of a sudden your posture in life begins to change to where all of a sudden your posture in life is, how can I love others? Not even for me, but for their sake. Instead of becoming a frantic taker, calculating risk and how much you can get hurt and how you can get what you want, you become a generous giver. Because this water fills you up and then begins to overflow. The living water becomes a spring in you. You become a giver because of what you have in Jesus. You love and serve just as Jesus served you. There are no dams and there are no reservoirs in the Christian life. There's no, I'm a Christian at Stanford and I'm kind of scared that there's like a non non Christians here so I'm going to find my little Christian ghetto and I'm going to hide there and we're going to protect ourselves from the evil unchristian world. If that's your posture and hope, you're not practicing Christianity according to the Bible. That's not Jesus. Because when you know the love of Jesus, it wells up and overflows out of your life. So the first thing is, you're, you, you actually become, you continue to fill and you become a giver instead of a taker. Secondly, this woman, what's awesome about her story is she experiences freedom that we don't think is possible. When you drink this water, you're free in a way no one thinks is possible. She goes back to the town that has rejected her and scorned her. And we all have expectations. Even today, we understand that certain people have relegated to hiding themselves. Right? When you have a certain kind of public reputation, you've given up the right to kind of be vocal, to be public, to assert authority, to, to attempt to teach people right? about the, the important things of life. Right? There, you reside in your, your corner of shame and you go to your place of obscurity. She doesn't do that. She goes and tells everybody. This is what she is. She is free. She is free from social expectations, and her freedom is not the spiteful kind. I'm not going to adhere to your rules because you're oppressive and disagreeable, so I'm going to make a scene, see I'm free, right? There's spiteful freedom. That's not real freedom. That's just anger masquerading at freedom. Her freedom is the freedom of love. I have found life, and I don't care what you think of me. This life is so good. I will go stand in front of you while you snicker at me in order to tell you about it. Come and meet the one who gives true life. She's free. This woman is free because true life and being truly loved makes you free. Lastly, she's a truth teller. When you begin to taste this water, you become a truth teller. She became someone who passionately spoke the truth. Unflattering truth about herself, this man told me everything about myself. And beautiful truth about Jesus. She told unflattering truth about herself and beautiful truths about Jesus. Some of us have gotten so used, actually all of us, to the political nature of even just day-to-day friendship life 
that we forgot that maybe at one point we were uncomfortable with the fact that so much interaction requires insincere charm. And y'all know what I'm talking about, where truth is no longer our concern, but making people comfortable is, because the great social sin now is making people awkward. That is the great social sin. And so we're running a political campaign all the time, being insincerely charming to one another. Filled people and free people, they're truth-telling people. They're truth-telling about themselves, and they're truth-telling about Jesus. Not truth-telling about themselves in any kind of flattering way either. And they're not truth-telling for the sake of kind of having that reputation of I'm a truth-teller or for the sake of becoming someone who glories in offending other people. They're truth-telling because they've drunk deeply of the love of Jesus and even though it exposes them all the way down because you're full and because you're free and because you realize that His love is what you're made for, you tell the truth just because it's true and it's good. I think if we deep if if we drink deeply of Jesus it is possible to live the kind of life that none of us actually think is possible a full life a free life and a truth-telling life and it will be awesome let's pray